Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Michael Craig, Assistant Professor in Energy Systems at the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability. Michael is an expert on building and using models of our energy system to inform policymaking, and recently published a study with a large number of co-authors that addresses a really important topic. How can energy modelers better incorporate variations in weather and climate, particularly as climate change leads to more extreme weather events? Michael will help us understand why answering this question is crucial to helping us keep the lights on and outline a research agenda that describes near-term and long-term steps to bridge the divide between energy and climate models. This episode will be of interest to all of our audience, but especially to those of you who work on developing, using, and interpreting energy and climate system models. Stay with us. Michael Craig from the University of Michigan, welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you uh, here. And here, uh, I, I should just note for listeners that we are recording this episode in person in my house in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we both live. And uh, it's nice to be having a conversation in person. It's been over two years since we've done one of these podcasts in person. So it's uh, a pleasure to be with you in the flesh. It's an honor to be first in two years. <laughs> so, Michael, um, we ask all of our guests on the show how they got interested in energy and environmental issues, like either as a kid or later in life. So have you always been interested in this stuff? Yeah, I've always been interested in the environment. Well, at least as far as I can remember, my mom tells me that when I was one year old, I lived in San Diego and she'd take me to the safari park there every day as a kid. And so I assume I just got attached to animals because I saw them as much as I did humans basically while I was growing up. And I really loved animals, the environment. I went to school wanting to work on them. And I majored in environmental studies. So I was actually an ecology undergrad studying how animals behave, how they uh, eat seeds really in landscape scale settings. And then when I went to graduate, I thought, how can I have a positive impact on the environment, achieve the ends that I want to? And I saw energy as a better means to an end for me and my skill set than working in ecology. And so I got to work at a nonprofit in DC, Oceana, on ocean issues, energy issues, and that kind of set me down in the path to energy. And then I had the great fortune of working with some great mentors through school. And that's where I really got hooked on energy, and that's where I've been working since. That's great. And for those listeners who have not been to the Safari Park near San Diego, it's really an extraordinary place. It is great. My parents brought me back when I was 24 years old, I think. And I think I probably loved it as much when I was 24 years old as I did when I was two years old. Yeah, I've only been once, and I think I was around 24 years old, and it was fantastic. Okay, so let's talk uh, now about um, about the work you do in, in, in a new paper that you've got out with a, a large number of colleagues. Um, we're going to talk uh, about that paper and how it focuses on the connection between the tools that model the energy system and the tools that are used to model uh, the climate system and the future climate system. Before we get into details, can you give us kind of a real quick primer on what we mean when we use the terms energy models and climate models in today's conversation? Absolutely. So you're right. This is a product actually of a very large initiative that's run by David Brayshaw at the University of Reading. Uh, It's called the Next Gen EC Forum. And so there's a bunch of different co-authors on this from the energy system community and the climate system community. So both these models are mathematical models, computational models, people writing code into a 
computer and running the programs. The energy system models, the keyword there is on the system. What we're trying to do is not model individual power plants or individual pipelines. We're trying to model systems of energy. And so you can think of this, for instance, in the context of a natural gas system, we might be modeling pipelines, compressors, producers of natural gas offtakers, and so that we can describe via an energy system model, or more relevant to this paper, I'd say, are power system related models, uh, where we are not just, again, focusing on individual generators, but we have many different generators, transmission lines connecting, large-scale generation or distributed generation to end users or consumers of electricity. So that's an energy system model, and we can use these for long-term planning, multiple years, short-term operations, and these are models that are used uh, you know, in many, many, many papers every year, but also utilities in the real world plan and operate power systems using these types of energy system models that we're dealing with. And so there's importance in this paper to researchers as well as to people who are actually planning and running these things in the real world. Climate models uh, also come in different flavors, but they are generally trying to represent and forecast climate and weather. That can be at a global scale. GCMs, global climate models, or generous circulation models are looking across the earth. And so when you see intergovernmental panel on climate change headline that says the earth is on track to warm by X degrees Celsius by X years, somebody ran one or more likely many different types of global climate models to get some global average temperature change. And so that's a global climate model, again, is trying to represent climate and weather. And then we have some other types of climate models, regional climate models, for instance, or RCMs that work on regional scales, maybe the Southeast US or over an entire country, for instance. Again, trying to do the same thing, understand climate and weather processes to try to predict what it will look like in the future. Just the smaller spatial scale you have, the more spatial and temporal resolution you can get. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when we're talking today about these models, we're referring to the, the whole swath of them and, and principles that can apply to any type of energy or climate model. Exactly, exactly. Great. So the paper itself, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, is called Overcoming the Disconnect Between Energy System and Climate Modeling. So that begs the question, what are some of the biggest disconnects that you and your authors are trying to identify and overcome? Right. So the big one is we want to capture future climate and weather inside of our energy system models. And that is very, very hard to do. And almost always it is not being done. Almost always we are running energy system models, whether it's in reality or in the research setting, using historic data. And so the main disconnect, again, we're trying to do is how do we get this future data that we know is more representative of the future than historic data into our energy system modeling. In the paper, we try to explain where the disconnects come from uh, by walking through what an illustrative energy system modeler generally does, generally what they're trying to do, and what an illustrative climate modeler generally does, what they're trying to do, to explain not just how these things are not aligning, but why are they not aligning. And so through that process, we go from this big overarching disconnect, which is we want this data in our energy system model. It's very, very hard to do. We break that down into a, a few smaller disconnects that all build up into having this disconnect happen. So one of them is when we run energy system models, we typically want a single annual time series. And that is true for most energy system models in research and oftentimes in the real world as well. We're running energy system models with one annual time series. So a time series is just you know hourly or minute to minute data that lasts a whole year. You can think of in power systems, wind power is a function of wind speed. So there's meteorological data. Solar power is a function of solar radiance. Demand, electricity demand varies with temperature. And so their 
there is some meteorological relationship there. And so when we run this with a single annual time series, we're missing a bunch of variability. We're missing just totally forget climate change. There's multi-decadal variability in the climate system. Anybody who has lived on the West Coast, for instance, is very familiar with El Nino, La Nina cycle. So there's variability there. You have that interdecadal variability. Now you layer on top of it non-stationarity or changing conditions imposed by climate change. So just using one annual time series is not enough to capture this variability. And in fact, climate modelers will never just give you one single annual time series because to them that is totally anathema to their understanding of how the climate system works. So we have energy system modelers want one annual time series, climate modelers want, you know, typically give you 30 years. So I'm an energy system modeler, you give me 30 years of data, wow, that's, that's a big change from what I expect to get and so that can be challenging for all sorts of reasons. Um, typically we also want very high spatial and temporal resolution in our data and energy system models. I know where my wind plant is. I want weather data for that particular wind plant, not for a 100 by 100 kilometer grid cell that happens to include that wind plant and a bunch of others around. And so there's a mismatch there. And temporal, I mean, we worry about second to second minutes, minute, hour to hour variations in the energy system. Sometimes from climate models, you get 24 hourly data. So they'll give you a single wind speed for an entire day. So there's another disconnect. Just we want certain resolution or spatial and temporal resolution generally doesn't come from climate modelers. And there's good reasons why it doesn't. It's not like they look at us and say, forget you, we're not going to give it to you. Their models were built for very different things than what energy system modelers were built for. And so we have this disconnect there. And then there's two other small ones about how we want our data. We want in the energy system for a given hour, what is my wind speeds in my region, but what is my solar radiance and what is my temperature so I can understand as demand is increasing, what is solar and wind doing? Is solar dropping off and wind is dropping off and now I have a problem of balancing supply and demand? Or are they, is wind coming up with demand and so I'm okay? And so we want to capture some co-variability, how all these three things move together. And generally, it's a hard to get that from a climate model because in part, they don't give it to you on an hourly basis, but also because they're not really looking at and validating their output from their climate models on solar radiance and wind speed and temperature on an hourly basis because who else besides from energy system modelers want hourly wind speeds? You know, uh, water planners typically don't want it. The agricultural community generally doesn't need that as so much as they need precipitation and temperature. And so there's just new demands, I think, that are being placed on climate data from the energy system community. And that means that we end up in this situation again where we want certain things. They're not nat natively coming out of climate models. And so when we want to bring in future climate data into our energy system models, it's very difficult. Yeah. That's great. And that all makes total sense. And it's really helpful for you to point out those kind of three key pieces for the energy system models, especially in the power sector here. We're talking about, you know, wind data, solar radiation data, and then temperature data to help you get at those kind of key energy system elements. Um, so, so you've given us a great kind of overview introduction to why this stuff matters and, and helping us understand the disconnects. Can you give us an example or two of like I want to say real world in air quotes because we're talking about models here. But can you give us some examples either of historical events or events that could happen in the future where it would be particularly useful to have better integration between these two types of models? Sure. I'll let the suggestion that my models don't perfectly capture reality just slide. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Right. So one example would be in California in the summer of 2020, they had an extreme heat storm. They called it a heat storm. And during that extreme heat storm, there was some outages happening across California, rolling outages. People wanted electricity and they couldn't get it. Uh, 
when California came after the fact and wrote a report asking how did this happen to us? How did we have these outages? Which is the last thing an energy system modeler or an energy system planner wants to have, right? They found that that extreme heat storm was partly uh, exacerbated by climate change. So we have some thumbprint of climate change on this event. Maybe it would have happened without climate change, but not as severe perhaps. And because of that extreme heat storm that was at least worsened by climate change, they had several things happen in their power system that led to those rolling outages. So this to me is one example where if we had a broader range of variability captured in the weather inputs that we were giving to our energy system models, maybe we could have detected that sort of event and tried to plan to be able to withstand that sort of event. Now, it's always easy in retrospect to say, aha, this extreme event happened, you didn't do it well enough, you could have found it if you had this larger variability. I mean, people uh, have talked about that with Texas in the winter from two years ago as well. But the idea that we're trying to get at here is, let's think about how the weather is changing, let's think of all the variability that introduces, and if we have that spectrum of variability, hopefully we can make better decisions than we can if we have a limited perspective on what weather can achieve. And so that's one event where I'm not sure if it could have or not, but that is a type of event that we're exactly talking about, something that a system operator planner didn't exactly foresee. It led to these consequences like rolling outages. Is one way of thinking about this like kind of like a stress test, like you're kind of stress testing the models under different you know, ranges of extremes? Yeah, exactly. So in, uh, we'll talk, I think, later about the solutions that we have or the reforms that we think each community needs to adopt separately and then together. And one of them absolutely is stress testing your system to different future meteorology or different future weather. And you need to know what that future weather is going to be in order to do the stress testing appropriately. Great. Is there another example that comes to mind that, that you wanted to share? Yeah, I think just in general, the other example I'd give is that we are really changing how we consume and generate electricity across the United States and in many different parts of the world. We are trying to rapidly decarbonize to mitigate climate change. Those decarbonization activities, even if they go exceedingly well past our wildest expectations, we still already have climate change happening. It will still get worse before it gets better. So as we're making these decarbonization decisions, we're building massive amounts of wind plants and solar plants, we're electrifying homes. We're making plans around all these different changes. We're still trying to make sure that we can balance supply and demand in the future as we make these investments. And so as we make these investments, we wanna be thinking not just about how do I mitigate climate change, we also wanna be thinking about how do these future investments fare under a changing climate? Are the power plants that I'm building going to be as useful in the future as I think they are now? And Power plants will last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Transmission lines will last even longer than that. And so, for instance, if I'm building massive amounts of transmission from the Midwest to the East Coast to bring a bunch of renewables, wind in particular, from the Midwest to the East Coast, which is what many decarbonization plants want to do, well, I have some expectation about the value of those transmission, what their capacity will be on a day-to-day -day and hour-to-hour -hour basis. And if temperatures are getting warmer, that carrying capacity will generally be less, for instance. And so thinking about our decarbonization decisions while accounting for changes in meteorology is another example I'd give that utilities across the nation are doing and I think are increasingly working on. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's really interesting, uh, especially in the context of transmission. I don't, uh, you know, I don't work with electricity models the way you do uh, day in and day out, and I sometimes forget about how transmission constraints can arise under different temperature conditions. Mm -hmm. so that's, right. that's a great point. And out west as well, under wildfire season now, that is a whole new type of, well, maybe not a whole new type, but that coupling has become much stronger in recent years. And so transmission of 
clean energy into California, say, from out of state is being threatened by increasing wildfires. Those wildfires in turn are being driven by climate change. And so many different types of interaction here between what adaptation investments do I need to make and what decarbonization investments do I need to make? Yeah. And sometimes wildfires are getting started by the transmission lines, but that's a whole other conversation. Exactly. <laughs> so another important part of the paper that you and your colleagues um, go into is a, about a research agenda. And because we have a lot of researchers who listen to our show, um, I, I thought it would be great if you could talk about that a little bit. So, so you outline a research agenda to overcome some of these disconnects. Um, can you kind of give us some basics on what you and your colleagues think some of the near-term steps are and some uh, of the longer-term steps might be to improve the kind of communication between these different types of models? Absolutely. So we have two different sets of recommendations. One for the near term, things that we can start working on now and people already are starting to work on now. Another set for the long term. And then all these recommendations, near term and long term, is all geared towards getting this climate data into our energy system models. In the near term, we want to take what's out there already, even if it's imperfect, and try to bring it into our energy system models. In the long term, we're trying to bend the climate data to be better suited to energy system models, and in that way have better data to incorporate into our energy system models. So let's talk about the near term. We have two different uh, recommendations here, one for the energy community, one for the climate community. For the climate community, our recommendation is to align those outputs from climate models so that they can be useful to energy system models. Oftentimes, climate models are being run. They're generating variables, things like wind speeds and solar radiance, for instance, and they're not really saving them, or if they're saving them, they're not making them publicly available because there's no clear end user that has been defined for those variables so far. So for instance, in conversations with climate scientists, sometimes you'll email them and say, I really want to use the data from this uh, GCM, global climate model, regional climate model, but I can't find this variable at this resolution. Do you have it? And they'll say, absolutely, I have it. It's not on the public data portals because that would cost me a lot of money to store and maintain, but I'm happy to send it to you. So having that more publicly available r would really just help uptake when I want to bring it into my energy system model. So first set of recommendations is for the climate modeling community, align those outputs with energy system modeling needs. And we have a specific list in our paper for any climate models listening, where we try to itemize, this is the resolution that we're looking for. These are the specific variables, meteorological variables that we're looking for. And we also explain why we care about them. The second one is for the energy system modeling community. And I, in case it has not been obvious so far, come from the energy system modeling community. And so these were, uh, yeah, very near and dear to me as well. And for the energy system modeling, we are trying to make them better at handling uncertainty in weather. Like I said, we typically run with a single annual time series. Absent climate change, that is not a great idea to begin with because you have this interdecadal variability. So we can get a lot of benefit just from making energy system models better running on long-term time series of weather, not just one-year time series of weather. There's a lot of reasons why we don't do that. These models are very, very large. They're very hard to solve. You can't just throw more things into them and crank it, right? It's not gonna solve that way. And so this has a lot of challenges. We need to innovate in terms of how we run them, how we think about them. But the more we can handle uncertainty in weather, the better able we're going to be able to handle long-term variability absent climate change and future variability. And the reality is, if a climate modeler came to us tomorrow and said, here is everything you asked for, I have magically produced it overnight, we'd still have a really hard time incorporating it to our current type of energy system model, just because, again, it was not built for this 30-year data with multiple ensemble members and all sorts of uncertainty in it. 
So that's our other near-term recommendation, get better at handling uncertainty in energy system models. I know you want to speak to the long-term recommendations too, but before that, I, I'm just curious, uh, as you were speaking, whether the sort of uh, improved computing power that we're seeing, you know, uh, what, what's Moore's law, like uh, double the computing power every two years or something like that, um, you know, is that helping uh, you to be able to incorporate these additional data or is it more an issue of kind of labor power and person hours that go into like rewriting the code and stuff like that? Yeah, it's labor hours are of course constraints, but ultimately it is still the computational constraint. And despite all the progress we've had in processing power, I started running these sorts of energy system models in my masters that was, wow, three plus two plus three plus two, what is that, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, I was running a power system model at roughly, very roughly the level of complexity that I am now. I mean, we can throw, we have better computational resources, supercomputers help, parallelization helps. So you can run more now than you could 10 years ago, let alone earlier than that. But the problems are just way too large in order to run it across a 30 year time horizon, especially if I have 30 years of hourly data, but now I've got multiple 30 year sets because of all the uncertainty. So it's just not something that you can throw it all into the model. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, um, so yeah, tell us more about your uh, long-term uh, research agenda. In the long-term, what we're trying to do is not just work within each of these disciplines, but instead have them come together to try to think about a new approach, not just energy system modeling, not just the climate modeling, but together as a whole. And so this is our transdisciplinary approach where if I am an, a climate modeler trying to think about how I can better help energy system modelers. One way would be to ask them what the outputs they need are and just give them those outputs. That would be something like an interdisciplinary approach. Transdisciplinary would be, let me think about how I validate my climate model. Let me think about how I uh, assess the outputs that are coming from it. And so what we're trying to do here is the same end again, get these climate system outputs that are better suited to energy system models but we want to do it in a new way, in a longer term way. And the two strategies that we have for that are have some energy system modelers go into the climate modeling community and inform them about what we need and let's do that assessment together, the assessment of the climate model outputs. And then once we have those climate model outputs, have the climate modelers come into the energy system community and help us better understand how we can leverage those data sets. And so that is a long-term vision. We think this will require much more time than just the within a community recommendations that we have. But ultimately, what we'll get out of this is more progress towards that end that we want, having future weather data into the energy models in a sophisticated and effective way. So I, I, I think that our listeners will uh, have a, a sense of this but before I ask you the question based on our conversation over the last 20 minutes or so. But... Um, you know, we do have a lot of researchers who listen to the podcast, as I said, and I'm sure some of them are interested in working on these topics. I know some of them are. And uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, what types of expertise or tools or skills are you looking for to complement this work? You know, are you still looking for folks who have, you know, certain types of capabilities to work with you and the climate modeling community to try to do this work? And if so, what might they be? And, uh, you know, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to think of a discipline where there is not some value being added here. And so I think if anybody is listening to this and they think, wow, I think I could add to this, I think they're 
almost certainly would be room for them, and so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you have my email from my uh, school webpage. We have this NextGen EC community that's run out of the University of Reading, David Brayshaw. We have an annual workshop coming up in two months. It's virtual, and we have a series of presentations, a couple tutorials. So even if you're new to this field and you want to think about how you can incorporate this into your research, we've got tutorials to train you on how to uh, work on these topics. So some specific disciplines that come to mind, of course, energy system modelers, climate modelers, whether you're working on downscaling techniques in the climate community, whether you're working on global climate models, whether you have some experience before guiding agricultural decisions or water resource decisions, all those disciplines, of course, would be wonderful to have here. And our author list from this paper, in fact, includes people from all these different areas. We have a lot of data computation challenges within energy system models, within climate models, within getting those high resolution outputs from climate models that we care about. And so people who are trained in computer science in general, machine learning, statistics, mathematics, all those, there are a lot of hard computational challenges that we need to overcome here. Uh, of course, economists thinking about the trade-offs that we have once we get our energy system models running, that will really help us make our decisions. And I'd say the risk analysis community as well as a community I've been trying to learn from more and more recently who I've been dealing with, for instance, thinking about decision-making under deep uncertainty. I will never know exactly what the future is going to look like. Uh, I don't even know maybe what next year is going to look like with 100% precision. Given that, how do I make decisions that I think will protect me despite the range of outcomes that I might see. And so the risk analysis community, I think, would be uh, wonderful to have join us in this endeavor. That's great. Yeah. And especially, I mean, in the last, what, two, three years, especially in the last several months, we've all been reminded about the importance of planning for uh, uncertain futures and having resilience against those uncertain futures. Exactly. And the, I think the Texas event really underscores that point where the Texas outages during the winter of 2021 were... Uh, were surprising to many people, and it was surprising to Texas, in part because that system planner had planned for a worst-case scenario that was based on 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. So, you know, looking back 10 years, for instance, since that event has happened, there's been two or three papers that have come out that looked, well, if you just took the historic record and you look back 40 years, here are some even worse events that you could have seen in the past. And so this is the whole even absent climate change, you look backwards, you capture that long-term variability, there's an immense amount of value in that in energy system models. And we have a lot of work to do in our own energy system modeling community at getting better and incorporating that historic uncertainty. Yeah. So last question, Michael, before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is related to this issue of interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity. Anyone who's ever worked across disciplines knows that it can be incredibly rewarding and sometimes incredibly challenging because people have different training, different background, different cultures, different uh, communities. Um, so what have you learned so far about um, building bridges between different disciplines and what are some of the challenges uh, that you've encountered as you've tried to do so? Great, so I think you've already hit a couple, different backgrounds and different incentive structures. So understanding why somebody thinks the way they do, how they were trained, where they're coming from, and also what they need to do to succeed professionally, I think can help you understand here is a shared pathway forward where both sides benefit. I think language is another very important one. I have had meetings where we use the same exact word, but we mean radically different things. <laughs> yeah. And so making sure that you have a common syntax and understanding when I say this word and you say that word, are we talking about the same thing would be great. Uh, I first started working with climate scientists in my PhD under uh, Paulina Jaramillo at Carnegie Mellon. And 
the most value I had through that exchange was I just went and sat with them for a week. And in sitting in a group of climate scientists and hydrologists for a week and talking to them, that like regular back and forth I found infinitely valuable and having that face time again because that's where you really surface these i think the data you're giving me is this let me make sure it is oh it's actually not at all what i thought it was okay let me change course and account for that and so those language understanding why and where they're coming from all that can really help uh, and the last thing i'd say is just the compromise aspect of it I want to run energy system models the way I have always run energy system models. Many people want to run their models, and that's not because we're stubborn. I might be a little stubborn, but it's mostly just because we have designed the models to do a certain thing because that's what we think is important. Energy system models are often run on an hourly or sub-hourly basis because we have to constantly balance supply and demand. Maybe at this point, it's just a little too much to ask for hourly outputs, for instance. And so having that compromise, understanding how far I can bring you towards me, but also how far I need to go towards you can also help, I think, find common ground and get better than what you would have if you had not done this in the first place. Yeah, really interesting. Well, um, Michael, this has been a fascinating conversation and it's a fascinating kind of stream of work. And I hope folks will reach out to you and uh, find ways to collaborate uh, to pursue it because it's you know, I think fairly obvious that it's really important. And, um, uh, and I, I really enjoyed talking to you about it. So now um, let's go to our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard lately that you've enjoyed. And I have the pleasure of seeing you fairly regularly. So uh, feel free to re-recommend something to me <laughs> if you want to talk about something that we've already talked about. Um, but what would you recommend to our listeners uh, as something that's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? All right, so I have two books, one very in line with this conversation and one somewhat adjacent, but I still think very relevant to thinking about environmental challenges in general. Great. The first one I have to recommend is a book that came out last year called Downscaling Techniques for High Resolution Climate Projections. The reason I think this book is very nice is it's written for a non-climate science audience, despite the name of the book. <laughs> the name does not in, uh, inspire generality. Absolutely, absolutely. But they have several chapters in there that are written for practitioners, for city managers, city planners, for instance, trying to inform people who are not familiar with climate models, here's how to think about climate model outputs, here's where they're good, here's where they're not good. So it's great for that audience, and I think it's also great for an audience like myself who have some familiarity with climate system modeling, I've worked with a lot of colleagues in the area, but I could also always brush up on understanding downscaling, for instance, which is generating higher resolution outputs. And so if you wanna work with climate data, I think this book is one way that would be, that is a great starting point in that Excellent. journey. Yeah, great. What else? The other book that I recommend I read six months ago, and I can't stop thinking about it, and that's The Making of the Atomic Bomb by uh, Richard Rhodes. And I think it is an incredible book that has really stuck with me because it's a beautiful story about science, and it's very inspiring, and I find myself thinking about just the characters in the book and what they accomplished and how they accomplished it while I'm walking to work, for instance. And I also think he does a great job talking about this was an incredible process with feats of heroic scientific achievement, and it also produced something that uh, has uh, harmed a lot of people. And I think it's impossible to read the end of that book without uh, becoming emotional, and I think it is just a great depiction of how science can be done uh, in different ways, and the end result can be sometimes good, sometimes not so good, and from 
whose perspective, you can also argue that. And when we think about environmental problems, I think often there are some very clear cut environmental problems. I think oftentimes, though, it is not this one thing is good and this one thing is bad and just get rid of the bad thing and more of the good thing. It's much more complex than that. And so I think, to me, that book is a very stark encapsulation of how you can have good and bad under the one roof. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And his previous book was about the energy system, right? I think his previous book was called Energy. Yes, uh, that's his brand new book that came out uh, three or four years ago. Yes. And the atomic bomb book is older? No, it came out a long time ago. Oh, it's been out for a long time. Right. It came out 20 or 30 years ago, I would think. It came out right as the records were being declassified. Okay, great. Right, right. Great. Okay, so the most recent book is Energy, but uh, but an oldie and a goodie is uh, is the Absolutely. is the one Michael is. I am just somebody new to the book. It has been out for a long time, so many people listening to this are probably thinking, "Yeah, of course it's great. It won the National Book Award and every award under the sun when it came out, however long ago." But you know, some of us are too young to have read it when it first came out. Fair enough. <laughs> great. Well, Michael Craig from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.